So we're in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. God's Word says this. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a uh, tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering in the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But in the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the most holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we thank you for Christ. Lord, we pray that you would make him beautiful to us this morning, that we would be in awe of who he is, that we would understand this picture, that we may leave this place glorifying you and living a life in faith and obedience and not of dead works. Do this miracle in our hearts now, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Again, this goal that uh, the author was, was trying to do is really sort of two things to show first that the new covenant is superior and he he kind of was speaking of that in chapter 8 and and then also invoke awe and trust in the sacrificial work of Christ as the culmination of everything that this old tabernacle pointed to. And the author of Hebrews, he does this uh, by by going about it uh, in really by describing the tabernacle and then commenting on it and then also describing how Christ supersedes that picture of the old tabernacle. And so we'll go about it in a similar way. We're going to talk about the pattern of the tabernacle, the layout of it, where things were, what the author had described. Then we'll talk about the purpose of that tabernacle and then the perfect work of Christ in in light of all of this. So let's jump right into this and talk about the pattern of the tabernacle. Verse 1, it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship 
and the earthly sanctuary. Now, before we jump right in and start describing where things are and how things worked, uh, let's, let's follow along with the author of Hebrews with this sort of prefacing statement. Uh, before jumping into this description, let me begin by posing a question. If the old system is obsolete, then why do we need to contemplate the old system at all? What's, what's the point of that? Why talk about the earthly sanctuary? Well, notice the language here in verse 1. This is a description about divine worship. This picture we're talking about and that we're going to explore is the picture that God chose to use. It is not a culmination. It's not Christ himself. It's lacking, but it is nonetheless a divine picture for us to consider. God was always very specific with his instructions in the Old Testament. I think somewhere around 30 times it says, do this according to that which I had told Moses on the mountain. Right? He's very specific. That's not just God being like picky. Like, oh no, I want the, that over there and this here. And, and like being like an interior decorator. Right? This is a purposeful picture. A picture of something divine. Something worthwhile for us even to consider. Thus, um, don't write this off as just being something maybe relevant for evangelizing the Jew. Know indeed that God wants us to see this beautiful picture of, of the tabernacle, which points ultimately to Jesus Christ. So the, the author of Hebrews, you know, he's, he's doing things very interestingly. He's never once said that the old covenant was not from God. That's not ever his intention. The author affirms that indeed these things were legitimate and came from God. That is, Moses did in fact hear God's voice on the mountain. Indeed, it was the voice of the same God that the author of Hebrews claims to serve. The God of the universe gave instructions of divine worship in an earthly sanctuary The author of Hebrews is not about to deny that. He is instead showing that the God who spoke to Moses is the same God who ushers in this new thing. The author, again, never puts the old uh, in a a way where it's incompatible with the new in a a way which it can't be built upon, that is. Uh, Instead, he says that the new covenant is the culmination of the old. This is the sort of reasoning that the author has. And verse 1 answers why it, you know, why it is he's about to describe in detail the old tabernacle and its purposes. He's going to describe it in a way in which the Jew who is hearing this and the Christian can both say, this is true. Amen. This is a true picture. This is an accurate description. And once the audience realizes that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant aren't contradictions, then they must ask themselves, why not accept the New? Again, why hold on to that old car phone? Are you you tracking with how the authors may be going about this? The Old Tabernacle, it's, it's good, but it's only background. Now, several weeks ago, Paul Johnson described the temple in some detail. And since we're far removed from the Jewish culture and probably have forgotten some of it, and since the author affirms that this description is one of divine worship, one where divine worship took place, and since it's also right here in the text to describing it, it's probably wise for us 
to backtrack and to, again, consider uh, some of what Paul had shared regarding the uh, format and, and the structure of the temple itself, or the tabernacle. Uh, which, by the way, the tabernacle is just a portable form of, of their temple, if you weren't aware. Uh, so let's, let's jump into that. Here's the outer courtyard once again. So I'm using some of the same pictures as last time, but uh, it reflects uh, the tabernacle in the outer court. It was 150 uh, feet by 75 feet in perimeter around that, uh, uh, that fencing there. And there was one gate located on the east, the one way that the Jewish worshiper had to go to enter into the tabernacle, the only way to God. Uh, perhaps, again, symbolism for John fourteen six, in which Christ says, I am the way. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. This outer court was, by the way, as far as any non-priest ever got that, that building there, that main part, that main part, they never went into that if you were a common Jew, if you weren't a priest. You only worshipped out here in this outer court. That was as close as you could get. And moreover, there's two pieces of furniture here, and both of these pieces of furniture serve as a grim reminder of how wicked they are and how holy and unapproachable God is. This is what... Their relationship with, with God looked like. First, you see that brazen altar. That is the piece of furniture located uh, closest to the entrance. It's the largest piece of furniture, and any worshiper entering that courtyard, they couldn't miss it. It served, again, as a constant reminder that God needed offering and needed sacrifice for sin. It was made of bronze which was usually a sign of, of judgment. Certainly that could be the case. The brazen altar, uh, this is where blood was shed, where death occurred to cover sins. Here, it, it was a visible symbol, really, of judgment for wrongdoings. That any worshiper entering to worship, entering the tabernacle, any worshiper had to mentally reckon with every time they walked in. Again, we see, again, such an obvious allusion to Jesus. What, does, what did we just contemplate? We contemplated Christ shedding His blood. Christ being that offering for us. He says His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. He bore the judgment for us. There was also a laver. You can see that small uh, basin that was used for the priests to cleanse before they entered the temple. Uh, they could not enter deeper into the, uh, the holy place or the, uh, in, unless they had first cleansed themselves. Uh, Exodus 30, verse 20 indicates the purpose of this, again, was so that the priests could cleanse themselves and enter the tabernacle without dying. Again, another symbol of what is necessary to approach God. And they washed continually. God wanted to emphasize with, with this piece of furniture the necessity of purity and cleansing. He wanted to show that no one approaches Him. No one approaches God or draws near without being cleansed. 
Again, another visible reminder that any worshiper sort of had to consider. They couldn't even cleanse themselves and enter if they weren't a priest. They just had to watch and consider, wow, God demands these things if you're to draw near. And you see, you take Christ. Who is Christ? He is the person who cleanses us. He cleanses us of our sins that we may draw near, that we may enter and draw in close to the Father without being consumed. Again, a picture of Christ, even just with these two pieces of furniture in the outer courtyard. You see, you take away the the work of Christ and and relationship with God, it's, it's so limited and so distant. Christ is so good. I am so thankful that that. Christ has come and and ushered in this new era where we can draw close to God. You know, you take Christ out of the picture, that's that's it. They can't draw near. There's the two reminders of judgment and cleansing and how unapproachable God is. and, And that's it. That sounds a lot different than what Jeremiah was proposing Right? They, they Remember what it said in chapter 8? They'll all know me from the least to the greatest. This is a description, again, what we see here. This is really just a, a description of the fact that God is a just God who demands judgment and sin keeps man out. And by inviting the Jewish audience, again, to maybe ponder some of this this stuff in the tabernacle, uh, you know, I'm sure they can't help but think of the distance and limitations involved. As you traveled onward, you enter from this courtyard and you enter into the holy place. And the author describes that in verse 2. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which Uh, in which were the lampstand and the table of sacred bread. This was called the holy place. And here's, again, the picture of that, and it's it's, uh, circled in red there. Uh, That's actually the entirety of the temple, the holy place and the holy of holies. But we're talking just about that first room there, the holy place with the lampstand. Uh, And the the actual tabernacle, the entirety of it, is 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. And the holy place took up most of that space. The, the holy uh, place had these three items of furniture in it. It had the lampstand, the showbread, and the altar of incense. Now, the author mentions really only two here, and we'll explain why later. However, for now, let's review these three pieces of furniture that were normally found in the holy place. First, there is the lampstand. The lampstand on the left, it was made of uh, pure hammered gold, according to Exodus 25.31. Only pure olive oil was used to to light it for the fire. And moreover, the light had to be tended by the priests and burned continually. They were constantly in and out, making sure that this lampstand would stay lit. Now, again, another symbol, who lights our path? Who guides us? Who, who guides us? It is Jesus. He is the light by which we see. Again, there's a whole lot of symbolism here, but we'll, we'll move on for now. Uh, to the right of there, there's the showbread, the table of showbread. Twelve loaves were placed on the table uh, each Sabbath by a group of priests. 
and they were to be eaten by Aaron and his sons uh, as their perpetual due, according to Leviticus 24. And this could have served, again, as uh, maybe a few reminders, a reminder uh, perhaps of God's provision for his people, right? There were 12 loaves there. Uh, As in our own culture, too, what's interesting is that there were actually uh, utensils there. There were plates and utensils that went along with it, and it was almost sort of like a an idea of, of dining in the house of God, so to speak. But, but notice that the only people who could touch that were the priests, were Aaron and his sons. It was limited under the Old Covenant, and only Aaron and his sons ever enjoyed the privilege of touching that showbread and, and, and eating it. Again, uh, the common Israelite, they never went in here. They never saw any of this. But isn't it wonderful that in this new covenant... Because of Christ, we get to enter, and we get to feast upon the bread of life, which is himself Christ. What a wonderful thing for us to consider, that that, that Jesus, the bread of life, is available to all, and that we can dine in fellowship with God. Amazing news. And now there is this last piece of furniture, the altar of incense. And, well, we'll stay here for now. Uh, There's a small uh, sort of disagreement amongst people here regarding why in chapter 9, verse 4, he indicates that the altar of incense is located in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil. Uh, And elsewhere, earlier on, and actually instructed by God, this furniture appears to be in that first room, the most holy place. And most actually agree that it was, in fact, located in that first room, in in that holy place, rather than the Holy of Holies, as described in our text. So that leads us to question, well, what, what gives here? There's a few different ways to look at it. Here's what I have landed on. Uh, it's likely the case that the author of Hebrews is describing a bad practice that the Jews of that time uh, had been doing. Uh, and, he, and, and he's sort of playing on their terms uh, as he's describing these things. Uh, Exodus is clear. The gold, golden altar was placed in the holy place. However, during this particular time, it's likely that poor practices crept into the Jewish system. Uh, and some have proposed that on the Day of Atonement, uh, the priests and the high priests sort of moved this golden altar behind the curtain in an attempt to burn incense to emulate the Shekinah glory of God that was used to rest upon the mercy seat. In other words, as they are performing, they're saying, hey, where's the glory of God? And so what they do is they move it in there, they put some incense, uh, you know, burn some incense, and it sort of has uh, a an illusion like the Shekinah's back, right? So that's, that's the one I've landed on. And they've perhaps justified this behavior because in Leviticus 16 as well, it says that they brought censers, which is like the portable, portable sort of uh, incense burners, that they would bring that into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But, uh, and so maybe they, they sort of twisted that to say, all right, we can move the whole altar in there. Um, that's, that's a possibility. Um, and there are other views that I think are legitimate. However, for me, this one makes the best sense of the data. And so n- now that we have that sort of confusion uh, clarified, let's move on and let's describe this altar of incense very briefly. The altar of incense 
Uh, again, it was uh, made of acacia wood and had gold on it. And it was, uh, how, how it worked is you would take the burning coals from the brazen altar outside where the sacrifice was performed, and you would uh, put that on this altar of incense. And uh, again, think about maybe some of what incense represented. And we know from Psalm 141, verse 2, Revelation 5, 8, and Luke uh, chapter 1, uh, that incense often was associated with prayers or, or, or prayers offered up to God. And, you know, this, this makes sense in light of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It indicates that Jesus is continually interceding for us. He is before the Father making our case. Christ is able to forever make our case on the basis of His own sacrifice. Remember, they got the coals from the brazen altar as well. Uh, so some, some interesting, again, symbolism here. Let's continue to move forward. Let's go past that curtain. This is the grand finale of, of the temple. This is the place where God and man would meet. Here is what the author says. He says, Behind the second veil was the tabernacle, which he called the Holy of Holy, which is called the Holy of Holies, having the Ark of the Covenant uh, covered on all sides with gold. So here's, here's the finale. Here is the Holy of Holies. It is that area behind the curtain, behind that veil. And it was this smaller room. This was the closest place in which God resided on earth, I think. Uh, and, and I think this is what they believe. This was the meeting place. No one went there but one person once a year. Now, think about the population, by the way. This is an entire nation, and only one person gets to go to the meeting place once a year. Friends, don't take for granted the closeness that you have with God. We take it for granted so much that, that the Holy Spirit lives in us, that we can dine with God, we can fellowship with Him. It, it's, it's really good news. It's really good news. And again, the common Jew, they never got here. They couldn't even dream of it. Only the high priest once a year could pass through that second veil. And, and again, in light of clearing up the confusion with the altar of incense and all that, there was really one main thing in this place, in this holy of holies, and that's the Ark of the Covenant. You can see it there. Here's another picture of it. And the Ark was a box that held items. And it had four rings of gold with two rings on each side. And the rings were designed originally for transport. Remember, this was the portable temple, that the tent that would move. And so they had to move this stuff around. And what they would do is they would actually have to shove poles into those gold rings and carry it. Because if they touched it, they would die. We actually see a case of that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. They're transporting it, and it's about to, to fall over. They're transporting it, I think, on ox. I can't recall, but um, and, and it's about to fall over. Someone goes to touch it, and they die. The Lord strikes them dead. Very holy thing. A thing that no one could just go up to and, and touch. And... Uh, Verse 4 indicates that there were three items inside of this ark. We have 
the Ark of the Covenant, in which was the golden jar holding manna, and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. Now, I think each of these were a testimony of the evidence of the Lord's interactions and covenantal relationship with Israel. So let's just briefly talk about them. Here are, again, the three items. First, the miraculous manna. Remember, God provided for His people in the wilderness. He provided manna, a reminder that God is taking care of His people. He is keeping covenant. Though they are not faithful, uh, He is and remains faithful, even in the wilderness. The second was the budding rod of of Aaron, serves as evidence again of God's interaction, since through it, uh, uh, God indicated that Aaron and the tribe of Levi were the chosen priests, and so God caused this rod to bud, putting an end to the murmuring amongst the people in Numbers chapter 17, And, and this was to be a sign for the sons of rebellion, according to Numbers 17 verse 25. Again, we see that these items are indicating sort of something. They're indicating that God is faithful and in part, really, that man has some problems. Um, But we do see that God is indeed uh, faithful with all of these items. And lastly, the tablets of the law themselves. Um, Do I have the picture? I do. The tablets of the law themselves. Certainly a relevant covenantal communication, sure evidence that God's presence was among his, his people, yet this law, again, is something that man could not perfectly keep. And so these items uh, served, again, I think as a sign of God's faithfulness to his covenant. And so we see the contents of the ark, I think they minimally uh, sort of indicate that God had a covenantal relationship with his people. And thus, inside the Holy of Holies is this reminder that God keeps his promises, even in spite of our own failures. And who, friends, is the ultimate promise? Who is the full disclosure of God according to Hebrews 1? How does God communicate now according to Hebrews chapter 1? Who is the the promised priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek? Who is the person who who is is the person who ushers in the better covenant? It's Jesus Christ. The ultimate evidence of something better. And then on top of the ark, was the mercy seat. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. This mercy seat is where God, again, would fellowship with His people. This is where the Shekinah glory of God shone right in between the wings of those two cherubim. Exodus 25-22 again indicates this was like a meeting place for God and man. Such a glorious mediation, such an interaction between God and man, I think is best captured by the God-man Himself, Jesus Christ. Through Him alone do we have access to the Father. Now, moving on, verse 5 ends, it says, but of these things we cannot speak in detail. And, and this, I think, is because they were a Jewish audience. They, they understood a lot of how this uh, how these items were placed and how they functioned. 
they were already intimately familiar with the system, but I encourage you to look into this system more. Remember, this is a description of divine worship that God used as a picture. Very interesting things to look into. Uh, particularly, I encourage you to look into the Day of Atonement, the, the day where the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Highly symbolic. A great picture of what Christ has done. I mean, I was in awe when I was looking into some of this stuff. The priests, again, they started in glorious robes, and then they stripped them off and put on a robe of white. And it reminds me of, of Christ who Himself became man, right? Yet remained perfectly pure and died for our sins. Then you have two goats, right? You have one for, Yah, uh, for Jehovah and the other was the scapegoat. One for, to appease God's wrath and judgment and the other indicative of sins being sent far away. It's really quite uncanny. This picture that God so detailed this in the Old Testament for us to today look at Christ and say, you are the perfect fulfillment of all things. I really wish we could do a full sermon just on the Day of Atonement. But, but know this, especially in light of verse 5, the author assumes the Jewish audience knows the details. So for, for time's sake, I will simply say that the more details you know, the more of a picture of Christ you will see. As you get another detail, it's not like, oh, I don't really see. It always makes the, the picture of Christ look better. So really, I encourage you to look into this stuff if you haven't already. Uh, so, so assuming the audience knows all of these uh, Jewish customs and traditions, the author moves on and explains the purpose behind them, and so we shall as well. Verse 6. Now, it, it seems the author is, again, trying to, he's getting more explicit here on the limitations of the old system, and alluding again to the true purpose that all these things were symbolic, and and not necessarily the ideal that the Jews thought that it was. And he starts, verse 6, Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer temple, performing the divine worship. We see that until the fulfillment of Christ, the purpose of the tabernacle was never complete. Notice the words, they were continually entering. They were continually entering the holy place. Though, again, it was divine, and again, it's confirmed in, in verse 6 as well, it says divine worship there, does it not? Though it was divine, it was never done. It was not complete nor perfect. Again, recall the beginning of Hebrews, by the way. In Hebrews chapter 1, he says that Christ is seated at the right hand. He's done. He's not continually entering any, anymore. He doesn't have to go in there. Uh, to keep the lampstand oil uh, fresh and, and so that the, the, the lampstand could stay continually lit. He doesn't have to replace that showbread. He is done with his work. Replacing the showbread, keeping the lampstand running, always, and mind you, every time they, they left and then came back, they probably you know, had to deal with the cleansing all over again. This is described again as the priest's divine worship, and it was what God demanded. 
And here's the thing. The Jewish audience, they wouldn't deny verse 6. They would say, yes. Yes, the priest's work is not done. Never done. They are constantly re-entering. God demanded that you keep that that, that bread be replaced and that you keep the lampstand lit. Of course, the work is not done. They would agree with you from the Jewish perspective that they're constantly needing to re-cleanse themselves. Of course, that's what God demanded. That they had to keep making sacrifices, keep replacing that showbread, and so on. And this is what the Old Covenant prescribed them to do. And a Jew will not deny that. But it is ironic that what God told them to do involves, as John MacArthur puts it, built-in lessons about impermanence. The author is then, uh, he, he, he's then explicit about limitations in the Holy of Holies. He moves further in and talks about the Holy of Holies in verse 7. We already saw that. Verse 7. Uh, but into the second, that is the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enter, enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Again, no one was allowed in except once a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest could not enter behind that veil except but once a day. And, and himself, they were probably, uh, you know, they had to, first of all, do the sacrifice, have the blood ready for the sprinkling. And they were, it seemed like a very serious matter. You did something wrong in that, that room, behind that curtain, you would be struck dead and they would have to pull you back with a rope. All right? And this is, this is the kind of, this is what the Old Testament and the Old Covenant Prescribed. They go in once a year, they sprinkle the, br- the blood, and then they get out. Right? Even, even that was so, uh, just so limited. With that blood, he would go past the veil, probably himself terrified, quickly make his way out. That was it. That is what relationship with God looks like under this system. Completely illegitimate. They indeed encountered God. It was all spoken and instructed by God. There was no entering the Holy of Holies without blood. It was all so perfectly fine print. Yet, it was just a picture. Not the ideal. Who can make things right? Who can get us into that that holy of holies and allow us to encounter God deeply the way we did prior to the fall? What sacrifice do we need? Whose blood needs to be sprinkled on that mercy seat? It is the blood of Jesus. His own blood. And this is where the, the, uh, the author is taking the Jewish audience the author wants to show that Jesus made His way through the holy place. Performed what needed to be performed. Entered the Holy of Holies with His own blood. The author continues verse 8, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the Holy of Holies has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. This is to say that you had to go through the holy place to get into the Holy of Holies. And without, you know, doing the priestly duties, performing the priestly duties, uh, you could not get in. Here's again the point. All of these duties that needed to be done, they were done by Christ. All of this is but a figure for time then present. The point 
is, is this, the way into the holiest of all was restricted. It came with restrictions. There was not full access to God. And even if you were a high priest, again, extraordinarily limited once a year, probably terrified, and this is not at all what God intended for a relationship with man to be like permanently. He intended it for a time, but now there is something new. He wants to walk with us again in the garden. Because of sin, though, there is a limited access. And the author goes on, verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. According, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. He shows, again, that these things were merely symbolic, alluding to the fact that they, they didn't offer what the new covenant offered, the thing he described in chapter 8. These offerings, these priestly duties, the earthly tabernacle, it didn't change people from the inside out. Notice that their conscience was still imperfect under this system. Yeah, they had some kind of exterior cleansing where they could maybe have uh, the wrath of God appease so God wouldn't strike them dead. And that's very very gracious of God, but their conscience, the, the inside of them, there's still a problem that needs to be solved. This is not the ideal. This is not the, the new covenant of Jeremiah where the law is written on their heart and they're transformed new creatures, as it says in uh, 1 Corinthians. Again, instead, this was a temporary appeasement of God's wrath, unable to set things right, unable to make things perfect. In other words, deep within us, we know the goat isn't making things right. And I think we all know this. No matter how many works we do, no matter what it is that we're doing, and we think, oh, you know, I'm going to be better. Oh, it's New Year. Let's do New Year, New Me. And we try all these things. No matter how hard we try, there will always be a problem inside of us. A problem with our conscience saying, I am stained with sin. Who can clean me? And there is only one. That is Jesus Christ. This old system was not able to make them perfect in conscience. Verse 10 Tells us why. It says, since they relate only to food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. In other words, it was all a temporary thing until a greater time was to come. It was never intended to be forever. Again, I love that, that way MacArthur put it, built-in lessons about its own impermanence. The first covenant couldn't set things right the correct way. A placeholder for a time of Reformation. These washings couldn't really wash their sin away. Just temporary appeasement. And now when I hear the word, you see the word reformation there, my mind immediately was reformation. Wow, this is Martin Luther. Different kind of reformation. But I think if we, un, uh, we can maybe understand what the word means by looking at Martin Luther and his story very briefly. right? Martin Luther, what, what happened? The church had problems. He noticed them. He takes his 95 theses, he nails it to the door, and thus begins a time of making things right. Noticing the problem, and then here's a time, a reformation of things being made right again. That's 
the idea of reformation. It is the setting things right that are currently wrong. And thus these washings, these rituals, these regulations, they were placeholders for this time of reformation, for the time when things would finally be made right. The time where the true priest would perform the true sacrifice. That is the time where Christ came and performed His perfect work for us. The perfect work of Christ. Verse 11 starts, it starts with these words, but when Christ appeared, that signifies the time of reformation. This is things being made right. Christ appeared. When Christ appeared as the high priest of good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. You see, this old system, symbolic, of a true heavenly tabernacle. You know, we think because the tabernacle existed physically, oh, we can touch it. Wow, that's so cool. This must be the real deal. No, the real deal is the heavenly tabernacle. The earthly tabernacle was just the symbol. The earthly tabernacle was just the symbol of the heavenly. It was all an object lesson serving as a preamble for the true high priest. The true one to come, to be the true mediator, to make the true sacrifice, to do the true cleansing, to light the way, to be the bread of life. Christ did it all. And He most of all restored fellowship in relationship with the Father. Again, think about it. We, we already talked about it over and over again. You know, build according to these specific instructions. Why? Because God had a plan from the very beginning. Because the, the, the Lord already said, you are forever a priest to the order of Melchizedek. It's all been planned already, this true heavenly work. God wasn't just arbitrary with this picture. No, this pattern served a purpose. However, it wasn't the purpose that the, the Jews necessarily thought. They thought the purpose was, oh, this is the ultimate way to get close to God. Whereas the true purpose is to picture Christ's work and for us to be in Christ to get close to God. He traveled into the holy place, did all that needed to be done. He traveled into the holy of holies, performing with perfection and completion and finality every single thing that needed to be done with permanence. Verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained Eternal redemption. The blood of goats, again, could not take away sin. I think we'll see that next chapter as well. It, it left the conscience unclean, we saw in verse 9. But Christ Himself, perfect. Oh, just think about that. Your conscience can be cleansed because something worthwhile, something so grand, paid the price wasn't just like, oh, here's a little goat. 
course, it's not going to cleanse my conscience. But when the Son of God himself dies in my place, oh, my conscience is free. There is a a newness. I am changed from the inside out as I consider such things. I pray that this isn't just boring. I pray we get this. This is good stuff. Christ himself was the sacrifice, but through his own blood, his blood permanently takes away sin. He is the priest, but he himself is also the sacrifice. The entire system, the whole tabernacle, a picture of the glorious gospel work of Jesus Christ. He was the priest, again, who took off his glorious robes, clothed himself in in pure white. He was the one who who sent our sin far away from us and became the, the object of the Father's judgment on our behalf. He has done the true work. And this old system, if it was marked by impermanence, this new one is marked by permanence. Look at the last two words there. Eternal redemption. Once you're bought, It is eternal. It lasts forever. The work is done. The work is done. There's eternal salvation and redemption offered to you. And the author makes this final point. If the old system that you want to go back to is so good, how much better is Jesus Christ? It starts in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifer sprinkling, those who have been uh, defiled, sanctify for cleansing of the flesh. Uh, so he, he starts off saying, indeed, the old system you know, was good. It could do this sort of external cleansing that, that helped keep God appeased for a time. It had to be done continually, though, mind you. But, but it still did something, you know. And recall from verse 9, though, it couldn't make the conscience clear. And so he's, he's, he's recognizing, yeah, this, if this did some kind of good, if this helped you at all get close to God or understand God, if this helped you at all, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish, without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See, far from denying the old system, the the author is saying the old system found its true fulfillment in Christ. And because of it, we are cleansed. Christ became that sacrifice. He performed that work for you. And even your conscience is cleansed from dead works. Notice that in verse 9, he talks about the conscience. Now, in verse 14, he says, your conscience is cleansed from dead works. You are entirely different. You are internally new. A new creature ready for a full and vibrant relationship with God. And look at this. No more dead works says the text. The Father is finally pleased with the sacrifice that Christ had made. There are no more Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrifices necessary. Christianity, again, it's the only religion where the verdict is out that God is pleased with you through Christ. Isn't that what relationship should be? Not performance-based, but one where, where you can just connect because he's already pleased. Christ made that possible for us. Full relationship restored. No more dead works. The Father is pleased with you and I because of Christ. 
Christ can do that work that satisfies. And look at the very end. What does relationship with God look like after Christ's fulfillment? It looks like service. Not one of dead works, but of joyous service. One in which the law is on our minds and our hearts as promised. In Jeremiah, a new covenant. We can now serve the living God. And isn't that an interesting byproduct of all this? When you're redeemed by God, you belong to God. And for some, that doesn't sound, oh, that doesn't sound so great. However, let me tell you, a true restored relationship with God isn't God being your genie. It's God being your Lord. It's Him, it's him being the being who you serve out of joy. Not a, a service where, oh no, He's displeased, but one where you can joyously serve Him. And by the way, I think joyous service to the Lord is one of the best ways we can evangelize to people. That, that mar- marks us as different. You know, when you see, you know, people, sir, oh, you know, I'm, you know, just trying to get by. That's not the kind of Christian life that's offered us. We have one where we're free from dead works, but we still serve the Lord. Oh, it's such an interesting thing to watch. I bet you could get a few people interested in coming through these doors if we serve that way. We serve the living God. Relationship restored in light of Christ's work. You can gladly serve Him because through Christ, He's already satisfied. Pressure's off. We, we know Him and we serve Him out of love and thanksgiving, knowing He is already pleased. You see, this old system, they serve to please God through dead works. In the new, God is already pleased, and so we have freedom in our service. And do you want this this morning? This is the sort of access. This is the sort of robust relationship that is available to everyone in this room this morning. Not to just me as some kind of priestly figure up here, but it's available to everyone. That is good news. There is no more limit to our relationship, but one of joy with God actually dwelling in you. And it's all made possible through the work of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is accept it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for this beautiful picture of Christ, Lord, that You saw fit to inspire and to have people write down for us to look at. Lord, and we thank You, Lord, that You Yourself did this ultimate heavenly work on our behalf. We pray that we would accept it, embrace it, and live by it. Lord, uh, give us faith in these things. Don't let these things stay in our head this week, but let us, um, let us just act upon them. Act as if it's true, because Lord, it is. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.